So welcome to this special history podcast. I know it's not a podcast that everyone's going to enjoy or maybe benefit from, but I've split it up into sections to make it a little bit easier. It's history, hopefully theological history, and yet history with a pastoral perspective. It's not purely an academic history essay, for I've included some observations and comments and even some anecdotes to make the work easier to listen to and more applicable to those who are reading or listening and who prefer to have their theology and their history applied. After all, what's the point of learning history if we don't use it to avoid the errors and the mistakes of the past? So, Ignatius of Antioch, Bishop, Martyr and Christian. Right throughout the history of the Church, there has been a litany of deaths, we call them martyrdoms, usually legally enacted by a state or authority, or through mob and individual violence, executions of people who were believers and whose only crime was believing in the Lord Jesus as their only saviour and being faithful to him. Even as we speak, those who were tortured and who died for Christ are in heaven. And John the Apostle saw them there in his vision. He wrote in Revelation 6 and verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? From the first martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7 to this day, people have given their lives rather than deny the Saviour. But as a question arises, Should a Christian ever actually desire martyrdom? One man certainly did, a man called Ignatius of Antioch, who died at Rome around the turn of the 1st or 2nd centuries AD. And in this podcast, I want to introduce you to this historical character and some of his beliefs, and to get a snapshot of the state of the church just 70 years or so after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I'm Bob McAvoy. And this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So just who was Ignatius of Antioch, and why is he so important for church history? Now let's not confuse him with another Ignatius from the 16th century, the Roman Catholic so-called Saint Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. This Ignatius, Ignatius Theophorus, was the Bishop of Antioch around the turn of the 1st and 2nd century. He was arrested by the Romans and brought to Rome for martyrdom. We know for sure that on his way to Rome he wrote letters to some of the churches that he would have passed on his way there. Seven of his letters are still available for us to read, and can be found both in a longer, unredacted text and in condensed versions. And there are summaries in some of the popular church history textbooks, like, for example, A New Eusebius by James Stevenson, published by SPCK. I'm told it's also possible to get an English and Greek parallel version, but I've never managed to find one. Other letters have been attributed to Ignatius, 
but their sources are unreliable and most historians seem to disqualify them. Six of the seven letters are to churches, and one is to his friend Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, who also was martyred at Rome. We know that he died at Rome and that he expected to be killed there by wild beasts in the arena, an expectation that we can reasonably assume was fulfilled. There is an account of his martyrdom, but it was written at a much later date and is thought to be mostly legend rather than history. So let's start with what we know about Ignatius and a little bit about what we can realistically assume. Antioch in Syria was one of the four major cities of the Roman Empire. It had a Christian church that dated right back to the earliest days of Christianity, to the dispersal of Christians after the first persecution at Jerusalem. And we know from Acts that the Antioch church was the mother church of most of the Greek churches across Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Achaia, and even Italy. It was the church that commissioned and sent missionaries out, men like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, to go to the Gentile world and to preach the gospel. Ignatius would have been studying for his ministry there under people who would have known and heard the teaching of the Apostle Paul. He may have even been able to listen to some of the New Testament authors, like Luke or John, who we know live to an old age, and whose own disciple Polycarp was a friend of Ignatius. We know nothing about the arrest of Ignatius. The ancient church historian Eusebius placed that arrest during the reign of the Roman Emperor Trajan, and we know that Trajan had a well-thought-out policy on the arrest and imprisonment of Christians. Trajan was, in relative terms, perhaps one of the best of the Roman rulers. Under his rule, the empire had prospered and had consolidated itself and had become content with the territory over which it had sovereignty. In Asia, the governor of Bithynia, one of the areas that had been successfully evangelised by Paul and his missionary team, was Pliny the Younger. And there is a letter that was written by Pliny to Trajan seeking advice. Some of the citizens there had accused others of being Christians, being followers of Jesus Christ. Essentially, under Roman law, these people were regarded as atheists, a charge that maybe sounds strange to us. But the Roman Empire required complete subservience to the empire as embodied in the person of the emperor. Christians refused to worship any god but Christ. So when asked to show their submission to Caesar by burning a pinch of incense to his name, they refused. And that made them atheists in the sight of Rome people who would not acknowledge the divine nature of the Roman Empire. That, in turn, meant that they could be reported to the authorities, arrested and interrogated under torture. Pliny, on hearing an accusation against some of these Christians, had arrested some of them. He explained to Trajan, and I quote, Those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted I ordered executed, for I have no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. 
There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Now, what were these Christians up to that was so offensive? Here's Pliny again. The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to commit fraud or theft or adultery nor falsify their trust nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again, to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved access superstition. Trajan's reply was that the state was not to seek out Christians. But when accusations were received and the accused were found guilty, they should be punished. Anyone who renounces their Christianity and worships the pagan gods should be pardoned, and anonymous accusations should not be admitted to any prosecution. If Ignatius was indeed arrested during the emperorship of Trajan, then it is highly likely that his arrest would have followed that pattern. As a bishop, he would be fairly open about his Christian faith, so an accusation would be made, he would have been arrested and tried and found guilty, he would have refused to recant, and he would have been sentenced to death. It's interesting that he was being sent to Rome for his execution. That might suggest that he was a Roman citizen. It left me wondering what the church in Antioch thought about the arrest and imprisonment of their leader. In his letter to Polycarp, Ignatius wrote, saying that the church which is at Antioch in Syria is, as report has informed me, at peace through your prayers. I also am the more encouraged, resting without anxiety in God. Perhaps they had the same attitude as Ignatius himself and thought of martyrdom as attaining to Christ. The journey from Syria to Rome was a little clearer. We can work out Ignatius's progress from his letters. We know that he travelled in chains along with other prisoners from Syria overland to Smyrna, where he was met by Polycarp and members of the local church, and delegations from the other churches, Ephesus, Magnesia and Tralles, who as far as possible looked after his needs. From Smyrna they travelled to Troas and after a short stay embarked ship for Macedonia, passing through Philippi to Italy and eventually to Rome. His treatment at the hands of the soldiers seems to be a little erratic, to say the least. On the one hand, he speaks of the beatings he received at their hands, and he prays that they may be to the glory of Christ in his letter to the Romans. He writes, From Syria even unto Rome I fight with beasts, both by land and sea, both by night and day, being bound to ten leopards, I mean a band of soldiers, who even when they receive benefits show themselves all the worse. But I am the more instructed by their injuries to act as a disciple of Christ, yet am I not thereby justified. And yet at the same time, along the way, these same soldiers allow him to receive visitors, 
allow him to have fellowship with other Christians, allow him to have companions and travel and write his letters, and even allow him to have the services of a secretary. Let's pause for a moment. Welcome back. In our first section of the podcast, we looked at the arrest of Ignatius of Antioch, the bishop and martyr. I want to move on a little bit and look at what Ignatius believed and confessed and taught to get an idea of what was being taught by early church leaders at the end of the first century AD. Everything we know about Ignatius' beliefs and his doctrines comes from his letters. And what we can discover there is actually quite revealing. I'm going to split this up into topics. And the first topic we want to look at is martyrdom. Martyrdom is one of Ignatius's most predominant subjects. He writes about it in some sense in every letter. Ignatius actually wants to be martyred, for he thinks that martyrdom will benefit him spiritually. That raises questions for Christians of every age. Is it right to seek to be martyred? There are certainly people in this world who will hate Christ and hate Christians enough to want to murder them. That's always been the case. At Jerusalem, the enraged Jews, hearing that Paul was commissioned by God to bring the good news of God's free grace to the Gentiles, cried out in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And yet faced with such antagonism, Paul had instructed the Christians at Rome where martyrdoms happened with regularity. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 14 to 18, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably. With all men. But Ignatius courted martyrdom. 
writing to the Christians at Rome, Ignatius, afraid that influential Christians might try to intervene and prevent his martyrdom, wrote to them saying, I write to the churches and impress on them all that I shall willingly die for God unless ye hinder me. I beseech of you not to show an unseasonable good will towards me. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts, through whose instrumentality it shall be granted me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God. Let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Rather, entice the wild beasts, that they may become my tomb, and may leave nothing of my body, so that when I have fallen asleep in death, I may be no trouble to any one. Then shall I truly be a disciple of Christ. Let's look at Ignatius's ecclesiology, his doctrine of the Christian church. And this is where we get a snapshot of how things are changing rapidly in the early church. Let's see an example of this in Ignatius's theology of ministry. When Peter and Paul wrote about the structures of ministry in the local church, they used interchangeable terms when they spoke about a plurality of elders and deacons, sometimes calling the elders presbyteros and sometimes episcopi, shepherds or overseers. Look at Acts 20. We're speaking to the elders, the presbyteros at Ephesus. Paul says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, episcopeo, to feed the church of God. In First Peter 5 and verse 1-2, to The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, presbyteros, and a witness for the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. The word oversight is the same as the Greek word for bishop, shepherd. So clearly to the very first church, to the apostles, elders and shepherds, let's call them bishops, are exactly the same office. Yet by the time of Ignatius, just a half century or less later, it seems that a threefold order is beginning to develop in the church, where there is a single bishop in each city, a council of elders, a presbytery, and a number of deacons. Running throughout his letters, it's a constant theme of obedience to the bishop, honour for the bishop, the primacy of the bishop, the bishop to be revered as Christ is revered. Do nothing without the bishop. Here's just a few examples. The letter to Ephesus in chapter 6. Now the more anyone sees the bishop keeping silence, the more ought he to revere him. For we ought to receive everyone whom the master of the house sends to be over his household, as we would do him that sent him. It is manifest, therefore, that we should look upon the bishop even as we would look upon the Lord himself. Now, you wouldn't find that in the letters of Peter or Paul. In the letter to the Philadelphians, chapter 2, Wherefore, as children of light and truth flee from division and wicked doctrines, but where the shepherd is, the bishop, in other words, 
there do ye as sheep follow. For there are many wolves that appear worthy of credit, who by means of a pernicious pleasure carry captive those that are running towards God, but in your unity they shall have no place. In his letter to the church at Smyrna, in chapter 8, Ignatius writes, See that ye all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbytery, as ye would the apostles, and reverence the deacons. There's a theory that Ignatius was in the vanguard of this pro-episcopy ecclesiology, that his insistence upon a sole bishop in every church was actually an innovation, a new thing, and that he was advocating for it so strongly in order to win over others to his own ecclesiological position. If so, then Ignatius, probably for good intentions, was pressing for a system of church government that was foreign to the Bible and which in its logical outcome would lead to serious errors. It wouldn't be long before one bishop would decide that his church was more important than others, and decree that he was first among equals, that he was primus inter pares, and that eventually would become the papacy. But what about the rest of his doctrine on the church? Apart from his views on the ministry of the church, which we've already looked at, what can we discover about the early sub-apostolic church from these letters? Well, there are four areas of note. Let's look at sacraments. Ignatius mentions both sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, in his letters. There must have been schismatic groups holding baptism and communion services, and Ignatius warns against this in his statement to the church at Smyrna. He says it is not lawful without the bishop either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast, but whatsoever he shall approve of, that is also pleasing to God. There's no mention, though, of the later sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, which, as we know, were introduced at a much later date. But despite this, Ignatius held a view of the sacraments which is closer to Romanism, or perhaps even Lutheranism, than to modern evangelicalism or certainly to Reformed theology. For example, in baptism, Ignatius talks about baptism in his letter to Polycarp. Baptism is mentioned as a weapon of the Christian against the devil in Christian warfare. Let none of you be found a deserter. Let your baptism endure as your arms. So your baptism is a weapon against the devil, possibly the reminder looking back on your baptism, encouraging you is what he means, I don't know. Communion. It's his references to communion that gives us the clearest picture of Ignatius's high view of the sacraments. He speaks of the bread and wine as being the medicine of immortality and the antidote to prevent us from dying in his letter to the Ephesians, perhaps a hint of sacerdotal theology, a belief that grace is transmitted to the believer through the agency of the sacraments. He also believed in the real presence of Christ in the sacraments, again a doctrine held by modern-day Lutherans. In his letter to the Smyrnian church, he castigates those heretics who abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Saviour Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. 
In some sense, he seems to have seen his own body in a similar manner as being bred. He was to be eaten by the wild beasts, and so he wrote to the Romans, as we've already seen, Let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Ignatius also wrote about the Lord's Day. Some time ago I went to answer a knock at the door, only to be confronted by two men handing out literature. At first I thought they were probably Jehovah's Witnesses, but as it happened they were Seventh-day Adventists. When they found out that I was a Christian minister, one of them began a tirade against Sunday worship, arguing that it had never existed in the church until the days of the Emperor Constantine in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and that he had forced it on the church because in fact he was never a Christian, but an opportunist adherent of the Son God. Now, regardless of that last accusation, which may or may not be true, it is totally without foundation that earlier generations of believers had not worshipped on the first day of the week, the day when Christ had risen from the dead. Ignatius wrote about it just fifty years after Paul's death in his letters to the Magnesians. If therefore, he says, those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death, whom some deny, but by which mystery we have obtained faith, and therefore endure that we may be found the disciples of Jesus Christ. There is no doubt that the Lord's Day was observed from the very earliest days in the Christian Church. Another early Church document, written about A.D. 96, the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, backs up exactly what Ignatius says. Didache 14 and verse 1 says, And on the Lord's Day gather together to break bread, and to give thanks after having confessed your offences, so that your sacrifice may be pure. Christian unity was a theme too. For Ignatius, Christian unity was an important theme of his ecclesiology, especially in the face of doctrinal assault from heretics. Christians should be united, and of course, in this version of ecclesiology, Christians should be united around the bishop. In his letter to the Ephesians he writes, For it is written, God resisteth the proud. Let us be careful then to not to set ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. Now in that same letter he uses a really interesting illustration. He paints a picture of a musical recital with a harp and a choir. And he writes, For your justly renowned presbytery, worthy of God, is fitted as exactly to the bishop as the strings are to the harp. Therefore, in your concord and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. So Christian unity is important. There's one more very important line in Ignatius' letters that we should not miss. It's about the universal church. It's found in his letter to the Smyrtians. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be. Even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Now that's the first mention in historical writings of the word Catholic to describe the church. 
although historical theologians suspect it was commonly in verbal use at that time. What does it mean? I was asking a man one day how he'd enjoyed the service he'd attended at a local Anglican church, and his reply was interesting. Ah, it was good enough. But they ruined it when they said the Apostles' Creed and kept in the words Holy Catholic Church. I don't believe in any Catholic Church. I'm a Protestant. Now, to be fair, when we say the Creed in our church, we usually substitute the word Catholic with the word universal. Like so many others, that man thought that the word Catholic was the sole property of that church based in Rome, with the Pope at its head, with a sacramental understanding of the work of grace, and with a liturgical form of worship and scant respect for the preaching of God's word. In fact, the idea of a Roman Catholic church is an oxymoron. How can a universal entity be confined to one place, Roman? The understanding of Catholicism in the day of Ignatius was closely related to the defence of the faith and correct doctrine and belief. In respect of the practice of the Lord's Supper and Baptism, he is simply urging the believers to stay within the universally accepted practice of the Church, that it may be sanctioned and enacted by the local Church leadership. The literal meaning of Catholic, universal, is according to the whole. There's a body of divinity within the unity of the Church, which equates to a universal Catholic position, doctrine as universally held. Paul had used this argument too. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 16, when he says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. A universally accepted standard of doctrine or practice, outside of which we must not stray. The Catholic Church. With a small C. Let's take a short break. Welcome back yet again. I hope you're going to stay with me for this next little section. We have 
talked about Ignatius' view on martyrdom and the church. We've got some more doctrinal positions to look at. What did Ignatius believe about the person and work of Christ? Around the time when Ignatius was alive, there were repeated attacks on the person of Christ, and there had been from the earliest days. The Ebionites, who were a Jewish sect within the church, believed that Jesus was merely a good man, the best of men, who was adopted into the Godhead because of his impeccable character. Jesus had perfectly kept the law according to the Ebionites, and therefore he is our example, and we too should try to keep the law. Ebionites had a works religion that didn't work, for no one could keep the law. It was little more than Judaism with a human Jesus as a perfect rabbi. But in the Greek-speaking world among the Gentiles, the continuing attack on the church and on the person of Christ mostly came from the Docetics, whose beliefs were the very opposite of the Ebionites. The Docetics actually believed that Jesus was not really a bodily human being at all. He was God manifesting himself in what appeared to be a human form, like a spectre or phantom of some sorts. John the Apostle had written against people like them in 1 John 4 and verse 2 to 3. He said, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ignatius would have known that. He's adamantly opposed to the Docetics. He denounced them as heretics. He warned the churches to mark them and to avoid them. In fact, one wonders sometimes if in his anxiety to oppose the Docetics, Ignatius just didn't go slightly too far in the opposite direction, overstressing the humanity of Christ. Still, Docetics were troubling the church, and it was their false beliefs that he was dealing with. He wrote, for example, in the letter to the Trallians in chapter 6, I therefore Yet not I, but the love of Jesus Christ, entreat you that ye use Christian nourishment only, and abstain from herbage of a different kind, I mean heresy. For those that are given to this mix up Jesus Christ with their own poison, like those who administer a deadly drug in sweet wine, which he who is ignorant of does greedily take with a fatal pleasure leading to his own death. Strong words to introduce the subject. In chapter 9 he goes on. Stop your ears therefore. When anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who was descended from David and was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink, he was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and he truly died. He was also truly raised from the dead, his father quickening him. Even after the same manner, his father will so raise up us who believe in him by Christ Jesus, apart from whom we do not possess the true life. In chapter 10 of that letter, 
Ignatius makes the argument that his own death would be futile if Christ had not come in human flesh and died in the flesh and rose again in the flesh. He writes, But if as some that are without God, that is the unbelieving, say that he only seemed to suffer, they themselves only seeming to exist, then why am I in bonds? Why do I long to be exposed to the wild beasts? Do I therefore die in vain? Am I not then guilty of falsehood against the cross of the Lord? His denunciations of the Docetics were not confined to that letter, but are repeated continually throughout his epistles. Ignatius's Christological thought is not confined to his opposition to Docetism. In his pursuit of the heretics in his letter to the Smyrnians, he demonstrated a good understanding of the purposes of Christ's death. He writes there, I have observed that ye are perfected in an immovable faith, as if ye were nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in the flesh and in the spirit, and are established in love through the blood of Christ yet being fully persuaded with respect to our Lord that he was truly of the seed of David according to the flesh, and the Son of God according to the will and power of God, that he was truly born of a virgin, was baptized by John, in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, and was truly under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch, nailed to the cross for us in his flesh. Of this fruit, we are by his divinely blessed passion that he might set up a standard for all ages through his resurrection to all his holy and faithful followers in the one body of his church. Now he suffered all these things for our sakes that we might be saved. Now there are some very strong statements of faith in that passage including affirmations of the virgin birth, of the perfect sinlessness of Christ, of him fulfilling the law for us, of Christ physically crucified on the cross, of Christ suffering all these things for us. Our own catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, in Lord's Day 15, question 37, asks, what do you confess when you say that he suffered? And the answer is, during all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness and eternal life. Ignatius saw Jesus, our Saviour, as the fulfilment of everything in the Old Testament. Those were the days before the formal acceptance of the New Testament canon by the Church. Now be careful. That does not mean that the inspired writings of John and Paul and Luke and Mark and the other New Testament writers weren't available. It doesn't mean that they were regarded as being less than the infallible Word of God. They were and they were circulating freely round the churches. All 27 books of the New Testament were available to the church at that time. For example, when Paul wrote to the Colossians, he advised in Colossians 4 and 16, And when this epistle is read among you, 
cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. The church did not make the New Testament. The opposite is the case. It was the word that brought the church into existence. So while no one had produced a leather-bound volume of all the books, the New Testament was already there in its 27 parts in the 4th century and the church laid down a canon, a law that the universal church would recognise these 27 books of the New Testament and exclude all others. It was, in effect, simply rubber stamping, but was already the case. So in his letter to the Philadelphian church, Ignatius wrote, When I heard some saying, If I do not find it in the ancient scriptures, I will not believe the gospel. On my saying to them, It is written, they answered me, that remains to be proved. But to me, Jesus Christ is in the place of all that is ancient, his cross and death and resurrection, and the faith which is by him are undefiled monuments of antiquity, by which I desire through your prayers to be justified. The priests indeed are good, but the high priest is better. He is the door of the Father, by which enter in Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, and the apostles, and the church. The gospel possesses something transcendent above the former dispensation, that is, the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, his passion and resurrection, for the beloved prophets announced him, but the gospel is the perfection of immortality. What a statement! He's telling us here that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. He's telling us that the Old Testament patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the, the Old Testament prophets are saved through Christ alone. That statement is an echo of the words of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 to 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. Tell you one thing, Ignatius was no dispensationalist. So Ignatius wrote about the dangers of a false Christology, he saw Christ as truly born in the flesh that suffered and died for us. He saw Christ as being the fulfilment of all the scriptures. So what did he believe about salvation? Some of the historical theologians will insist that they see echoes of Pauline thought and doctrine in the letters of Ignatius. There's some evidence for that. We've just seen some of it, but not a lot. But then my reading of the letters is confined to English versions and redacted English versions at that. His understanding of the doctrine of salvation falls a little bit short of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, 
and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now you won't find language like that, or soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, expressed in those terms in any of the letters of Ignatius. There are two aspects of his belief in salvation that stand out. I'm going to call them attainment to Christ and the bait and hook theory. Let's look at attainment to Christ first. The phrase that I might attain to Christ appears frequently through Ignatius's letters. And when it appears, it is usually expressed as a result of martyrdom. So when Ignatius died in the arena at Rome, it was so that he might attain to Christ or attain to God. To get to Christ or to get to God. Now that sounds suspiciously like works-based religion. Doing something, even dying to get God. There's a hymn, allegedly based on the words of St. Francis of Assisi, which begins with, Make me a channel of your peace. And it includes the words, It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, in giving to all men that we receive, and in dying that we are born to eternal life. I don't much like that hymn. It's just more works righteousness. Doing something to be pardoned. Doing something to receive from God. Dying to gain eternal life. None of those things are true. For all of those blessings are the unique free gifts of God. Granted by his sovereign grace alone. Martyrdom or death to attain to Christ. Filtered down as a theme in Roman Catholicism too. Let's see this idea that martyrdom and death is the gate to God in Ignatius' own writings. In his letter to the church at Rome, Ignatius pleaded with the church to allow that martyrdom to take place, as we've already seen, and not to seek any intervention on his behalf. He wrote, If you are silent concerning me, I shall become God's. But if you show your love to my flesh, I shall have to run my race again. Pray then, do not seek to confer any greater favour upon me than that I be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared. It is good to set from the world unto God, that I may raise again to him. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts, through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. Attainment to Christ through martyrdom, a way of salvation. Strange doctrine. And then there's what we call the bait and hook theory. Now this one is for those who enjoy reading and learning about the theories, the various theories of the atonement that have been held by different branches of the church. As Reformed Evangelicals, we believe in the biblical doctrine of the atonement as expressed by Paul and John and the other New Testament authors. The understanding that when Jesus died upon the cross, God placed upon his sinless Son the sins of all those who would believe in him, and in his death he atoned for those sins. He bore in his own body the punishment that was due to us. 
and he thus satisfied the divine justice of God. Simultaneously, he granted to us his own righteousness, as a cloak, to blot out our sins, to wash them all away, so that in the sight of God we are declared to be without sin, and we are in Christ. Let's see just a tiny little bit of biblical evidence. John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Second Corinthians 5 and 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 2 and 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now have in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. First Peter 2 and verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. First Peter 3 and 18. For Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. But over the years, there's been other ideas put forward to explain how Christ's birth, his sinless life and death, have purchased our salvation. And one of those is the so-called bait-and-hook theory. And it may even have originated with Ignatius. Because of their sin, this theory says, people rightly belong to Satan. So God, who loved sinners, offered his Son as a ransom, a bargain that the devil readily accepted. It was only when the devil got Christ down into hell after his crucifixion and death that the evil one realised that Christ's power was stronger than death and that hell could not hold him. And so he rose again from the dead, leaving Satan without either his original captives, that's us, or the ransom itself, that was Christ. The thought that God, who is sinless and holy, deceived the devil didn't seem to bother the early church fathers who believed this theory. They used an illustration which gives this theory its name. They thought of the flesh of Jesus as being the bait, the deity of Christ the hook. Once the devil took the bait, the human Christ, he found to his horror that it covered and concealed the hook that trapped him, the divinity of Christ. There's a hint, and it's only a hint towards this theory in Ignatius's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 19. He writes there, Now the virginity of Mary was hidden from the prince of this world, as also was her offspring, and the death of the Lord. Hence every kind of magic was destroyed, and every bond of wickedness disappeared. Ignorance was removed and the old kingdom abolished, God himself being manifested in human form for the renewal of eternal life. And now that took a beginning which had been prepared by God. Henceforth all things were in a state of tumult, because he mediated the abolition of death. Of course, we have to be careful with theories like that. God didn't just save us because he could, and because he was stronger and smarter, and could outwit the devil and fool the devil into taking the bait and swallowing the hook. Might is right is not an adequate description of what Christ did for us, especially when we consider verses like Ephesians 5 and 2, which tells us to walk in love 
as Christ hath also loved us, and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. I suppose there's a place for the doctrine that Christ has conquered sin. But we see that as part of the larger, more rounded doctrine of salvation, that God loved sinners and that he gave his own Son, that through his death he would overcome death for them. So we've looked briefly at evidences of Ignatius's theology of salvation, his soteriology in his letters. Let's have another short break. Okay, so we have reached the final hurdle. We're coming close to the end of this marathon. Ignatius was born in Syria, in Antioch, was the bishop of the church there, and we've learned that. We've learned a little bit about his arrest, what it could possibly have looked like. We have looked at his doctrine. Ignatius died for Christ at Rome. There is an account of that death, but it's written later, and it's not generally regarded as historically sound. We know that on his way to Rome, he wrote to the Romans, and he described to them in gory detail the death that he anticipated in Rome. He says, Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. And we have to assume that was indeed his fate. We do have a contemporary record of another martyrdom, the death of Polycarp, Ignatius's friend, the Bishop of Smyrna. And we know for sure that he was taken into the arena and that attempts were made to persuade him to recant and to deny Christ. And when he refused, he was threatened with those very wild beasts who would tear him from limb to limb. 
And when the Romans saw that Polycarp was unmoved by that threat, they decided they would burn him instead. Polycarp died as the vicious mob laughed and drank and cheered and called out, Away with the atheists. We can only assume that Ignatius's death was very similar. The unreliable later account states, being immediately thrown into the animal's enclosure according to the command of Caesar given some time ago. The public spectacles being just about to close, he was thus cast to the wild beasts close behind the temple, that so by them the desire of the holy martyr Ignatius should be fulfilled according to that which is written. The desire of the righteous is acceptable to God, to the effect that he might not be troublesome to any of the brethren by the gathering of his remains, even as he had in his epistle expressed a wish beforehand, that so his end might be. For only the harder portions of his holy remains were left, which were conferred to Antioch and wrapped in linen, as an inestimable treasure left to the holy church by the grace which was in the martyr. Now, in that statement, you can see a lot of Roman Catholic doctrine, and that's why we pay no attention to it. Uh, it's a much later invention. So what can we learn from Ignatius Theophorus, the Bishop of Antioch and Martyr? Well, certainly we can be inspired by his courage. A man who was so convinced of his faith and so confident in Christ as to have no fear of death in the face of persecution is an example to us all. We may find his desire for martyrdom very strange, very unnecessary, and his theology of martyrdom, his understanding that martyrdom is the means to attain to Christ, we may find that a little less than evangelical. But would we be so utterly convinced as he was, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That we would write to influential people in the city of our death, warning them not to stop it from happening. That takes a special courage. Negatively, we think it's sad. And so soon after the lofty and mighty doctrinal writings of Paul and the early apostles, the clear setting forth of the doctrines of grace, the church at the end of the second century had backslidden into sacramentalism and into some form of doctrinal error regarding salvation. And that's how we too must guard ourselves. And that's why Paul wrote to Timothy, Take heed unto thyself, and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The letters of Ignatius help us to remember that we're to take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. Well, thank you for listening. It's been a long episode, and I hope you've learned something about Ignatius. There's more church history coming soon. I intend very soon to be looking at the canons of Dort and the Synod of Dort, and I hope that you'll join me for that when that episode becomes available. Until then, goodbye, God bless.